This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book on April the 3rd, 30th, I'm sorry, 59. I'm adding the dates to these recordings because we have been recording for so many years and it seems time that we got some sort of check. I made a mistake, you see. But this is April the 30th, 1959. The covering subject is fundamentals of Christian faith. The separate one is what is man and this is number five of the series. We are going to read together the Epistle to the Colossians, chapter 1, through to chapter 2, ending at verse 7. If those of you who are listening to this recording care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two and read with us Colossians, chapter 1, through chapter 2, ending at verse 7. If we had before us the complete literary structure of this epistle to the Colossians, you would discover that where it speaks of Christ in verse 15 as the image of the invisible God, the corresponding member is chapter 3, where it says um, in verse 10, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You see, it's not a mere accident that that image is stressed in chapter 1. For he's going to read, lead on to the composition of the church, which is the body of Christ. He speaks about, in that church, Christ is all and in all, and he once more says, the image of God. It's not merely just a passing reference. This question of the image of God permeates the book, and although we partly touched upon it, as necessarily we must have done when we dealt earlier with Genesis 1, I want to touch upon it again. Some things will have to be repeated, but other aspects, I think, ought to come in before we pass from Genesis 1 and 2 to the great tragedy of Genesis 3 and also the great promise that was also embedded in that chapter. Now, I'm going to start this rather strange way to read a short article that is found in the Brilliant Expositor, volume 30, and page 5 starts. I think I shall save time if instead of pretending I'm not reading it, I uh, try to speak as though it's extemporary. Uh, I'll just read it straight away and then pick it up and show why I have put this before you. A popular London daily newspaper some time ago published a series of articles entitled What I Believe. The usual endeavour was made to get a representative set of opinions and the writers included an agnostic, a Jesuit, a poet, a playwright, and a professor. Apart from two of the articles, or at most three, the views expressed would have been better headed what I do not believe. Anyone in trouble or despair reading the series would be justified in echoing Job's words, miserable comforters are ye all. One article, however, was particularly striking by reason of the fact that it so completely missed the mark and so completely justified the opening chapters of Genesis. The article concerned was written by a professor of industrial relations, whose intense humanity and wise counsel have made him both loved and respected by a large number of wireless listeners, and by the many readers of his articles and letters of advice. Uh, that professor died some time ago. This is the way in which he opens his article. Do I believe in God? I don't know. 
if I could only grasp the question, but I can't. Ask your Celium, for the benefit of any who don't know, that's a dog. So I'm going to say dog in, in, afterwards. Ask your dog if he believes in time-space. He'll bark or growl because he'll know you're making those noises that humans make. But it won't mean anything because the question was beyond his ken. At first sight, one might be pardoned for saying that there's some truth in the professor's simile. God is infinite. God is spirit. God is invisible. Who are we that we should talk of knowing him or believing in him? There is, however, a fundamental fallacy here that we do well to recognise. It is obvious that the celium or the dog would not have the remotest conception of time-space and any appearance of intelligence in this connection would be misleading. Let us set the argument out in syllogistic form. The reader will probably perceive that we need more than one syllogism to make a perfect presentation of the argument, but for the present, this will suffice. A dog cannot understand time-space. God is even more difficult to understand. Therefore, man cannot understand God. You see, that's the argument put in the synergistic form. Even the untrained mind will perceive the weak point here, but let us pass on to the sequel. The assumption is that man is no more capable of understanding the idea of God than a dog is capable of understanding the idea of time-space. But is this so? The book of Genesis goes out of its way to draw attention to the creation of man, marking him off from all other creatures, and emphasising one feature in particular, that renders the professor's argument valueless. If Genesis be true, man was made in the image and likeness of his creator. And however intelligent a dog may be, that can never be said of that animal. While recognising the immense gulf that separates the creator from his creatures, we must also remember that God has instituted a relationship between man and himself of such a character that God and man may use similar terms. They can meet on common ground and can understand a common language. While it is true that the human terms in which God has been pleased to reveal his nature and attributes must always be understood as symbols and not ultimate realities, yet the testimony of Genesis and the faculties of man alike assure us that the comparison instituted by the professor is not a true one. Luke the third chapter tells us that Adam was a son of God and we should expect a son, however lowly, to be capable of fellowship and understanding in relation to his father. That would be on a much higher plane than any relationship that could exist between the most intelligent dog and the thought processes of his master. Man created in the image of his maker has been endowed with a faculty which at least appreciates his eternal power and Godhead, and renders ignorance without excuse. Romans 1, 19 and 20. The advent of sin and death has impaired these faculties and seriously impaired the image. But both faculties and image remain the distinctive characteristic of man. Added to this, of course, we have the gospel message that in the fullness of time God was manifested in the flesh and seen and heard by men, to whom it was revealed that having seen him, they had seen the Father. Both the nature of man by creation, and the coming of Christ in grace, make the parallel between the celium, the dog, 
a man untrue and misleading. That which may be known of God has been manifested to man in terms that he can understand and that are based on the very nature and purpose of his creation. The book of Genesis, so easily tossed aside by the modern mind, contains in germ the answer to the problems of all mankind. What a tragedy, first of all, to brush the lamp aside and then to speak of groping in the dark as wisdom. That was just an article introducing this thought that by the very constitution of man, differing as he does from all other creations, uh, creatures on this earth, by being made in the likeness and the image of his maker, it indicated a relationship which meant that although we are conscious of the infinitude of God and the immensity of God, yet if God condescends to stoop and speak to man, man will be so constituted that he can say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant hearing. So I want now to run over this question a little bit more with regard to man being in the image of God, and then although we still have to confess there's much that we ought to have said, much that we left undone, we'll have to proceed to man as we know him now. Man fallen, not man innocent. You notice I do not say man righteous. I don't believe Adam was righteous. That's a positive thing. He was innocent. And he fell. And we have come into the world in relation to him. Let's go back to Genesis 1, verse 26, to pick up our thread once again. And if anyone in the meeting, or any of you friends who are listening, say, oh dear, oh dear, we know all about this, well, I think we ought to exchange places, or that would be rather awkward for you living at the other ends of the earth. But I don't think we're going to say that. Most of us realise we have indeed, as the hymn says, an unfathomable mind. And it will beat us with regard to the ability to say we know it all. Genesis 1, 26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I've already explained to you that so far as I see, this is a figure of speech which is better rendered into the English. Let us make man in the likeness of our image. In the likeness of our image. Adam was the likeness. Christ is the image. Adam was the first man. Christ is the second man. And so we have the parallel. Now, the first thing I would like you to remember is that this word, uh, image, is derived from a four-letter root, T-S... No, I'm sorry. Three-letter root, although in the English language we have to say T-S. A T-S is just one letter. Cell. T-S-E-L. And that three-letter root word means a shadow. Just give you one, in, one uh, statement. The Genesis book, chapter 8, uh, oh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 19, I'm on the wrong track, uh, but I've repented and that's the next best thing to do. 19, chapter 19, verse 8. Behold, now I have two daughters. We'll go right to the bottom of the verse, because that's not our subject. For therefore came thy, they under the shadow of my roof. That word shadow is this word which we have, he's made in the image of God. The shadow. That was what Adam was, a shadow. 
you'll find that the word in chapter 5, 3, now, to show that after the fall, even though man had sinned and was expelled from the garden, it says, chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made him. Now you see, that's condensed. It doesn't say in the likeness of his image, but it says in the likeness of God, which of course shows you that we've got to remember that that may be the meaning in the extended statement in verse 26 of chapter 1. Male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness after his image and called his name Seth. Well, there's a perpetuation. Of course, somebody said, ah, but that was, that's where he was wrong. This son of his was only in the image of Adam. Well, as Adam was in the image of God, it comes to the same thing, doesn't it? And if you don't believe that, you'll turn to chapter 9, after the tragedy of the flood, when there was a blotting out of mankind except Noah and his family. And after Noah came out of the ark, a second Adam, in sort of symbol, some things are repeated, some things are modified. Let's look. Think of Noah standing again on, a, on a, an earth that's passed through a flood. What do you say, Genesis 1, 2? Had a terrific cataclysm, yes. And here's another one. And Adam, he had three sons, and Noah, he had three sons. And one of Adam's sons was Cain, of that wicked one. And we have one of Noah's sons, Canaan, through Ham descended through Ham, who's mentioned and is conspicuous. Uh, but here we have, in the very words of Genesis itself, parallels. And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, the very words that you have in Genesis 1, be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. I ask you to notice that, because there are some commentators, who say in Genesis 1, there is no idea of replenishing the earth, it means that they're simply going to have descendants. But you see, after the flood, this is a very valuable comment. They were to replenish an earth that had been destroyed. There's no doubt about a flood in Genesis 6, 7 and 8. Some have a doubt about a flood in Genesis 1 verse 2, but they're comparable, you see. Well then the next is, in Genesis 1, and let the man have dominion over the beast of the field, the fowl of the air. Dominion. But look with this. And the fear of you, and the dread of you, shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. You see, that was a step down, wasn't it? Before man sinned, he had dominion. After he had, after he, he's been delivered through the flood, he's not given dominion again. It's the fear of you and the dread of you. You can't imagine Adam going out with a fishing rod or a gun in the Garden of Eden, can you? And you can't imagine the beasts and birds all running and hiding themselves and saying to whatever that age is, look out, there's a man coming. But that's what happens in creation now. Every time you see a sportsman going out to say, there goes an evidence that man sinned and lost his dominion. Only say it quietly in case he's a better man than you are, Gungadeen. And so we have this. Now then, there's the next bit. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. Even as the green herb have I given you all things, is a change in diet. Something had happened to the temperature, the constitution of the earth, and on top of that, 
There had been a spiritual invasion by fallen beings into this world that brought about the flood. And God was going to protect the human race a little bit by making them a little bit more gross. All I know, if you want to be very refined, you'll live on things that you buy in the shop with all fantastic names, you know, and you'll never touch this and you never touch that, says God, I know all about that. But I'm going to give you flesh to eat and it's going to make you a bit more gross than you might have been, but you'll be less susceptible to spiritualistic invasion. You know, I don't want to advertise, but if you wanted to be an adept in spiritualism, there are two necessary things. But to be an adept, right in the very centre of spiritualism, you'd have to be a confessed vegetarian, and you'd have to be unmarried. And so these things have got to be watched because they're revived again in the last days according to Paul writing to Timothy. So there's a fear of you and a dread of you. Now then, but the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. Why? And surely your blood of your lives will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man. At the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For, here's the argument, for, in the image of God, made he man. Now that's the central element in murder. It not only takes a man's life, it not only invades his family, but it touches the image of God. The image of God may be battered. When they said, when the Lord said, show me a penny, well, it doesn't say that it was just newly minted and perfect. It may have been battered, but the image was there, and the superscription. I don't want to call you old and battered coins, but we're more or less like that, friends. I speak myself as well as you. But the image is there, brought through the flood, and now a little bit reserved, not everything said as it was said of Adam, but enough to show you that it's continuous. And if you'll go through to the epistle of James, which is right in the New Testament, you'll see that he says the same thing. That although we may have sinned and fallen and been expelled from the garden, yet chapter 3 of the epistle of James, he's speaking about the tongue, how unruly it is. Uh, but here we have um, verse 8, But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. Well, that similitude of God is just the same as the shadow, the image, or the likeness. So right there, a man who can curse is nevertheless a man who is in the similitude, likeness of God. So it persists right the way through. Now, the next thing I think is to realise that idolatry, in every shape and form, is a challenge to Christ. Put it this way. When you shut your eyes to pray, can you think of God as God? I wouldn't like to ask some people because I know full well they're, in their mind, is a very elderly gentleman with a long white beard Possibly he wears a clerical collar, I'm not sure about that. And he's a very stern sort of person, and you've got to watch out, but he's always on the look to see whether you're doing right or wrong. I don't think I'm exaggerating. 
Now, if you don't have some image like that, what have you got? God is invisible, intangible, inaudible, infinite. He's neither, he's not located here nor there, but uh, everywhere at the same time. Don't you feel conscious? Don't you feel glad that you haven't got to worry about that, but it's already written? But we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So far as you and I are concerned, the answer is God is Christ-like. If ever there'll come a day when we have to add to our lesson, it'll be right. But up to the present moment, that should be all sufficient. God is Christ-like. So that he could challenge him and say, you're asking to be shown the Father, but he that has seen me hath seen the Father. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath given him an outline. He hath declared him. So, we have this thought that idolatry challenges the very central position that Christ should occupy. Will you look at Romans, the first chapter? In this chapter, he has first of all stressed the revelation of the righteousness of God as the power of God unto salvation, and then he turns away from that to prove that righteousness is required. Before ever you go to the person and tell him he needs salvation, you've got to make him feel that he needs salvation. Otherwise, you're offering him something that he doesn't feel he wants. So, he says here in verse 20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understand, understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, a God of mercy and a God of truth can say that the heathen world are without excuse. He says so. That they've had enough evidence in the things that he's made to prevent them from becoming idolaters. Because that, when they knew God, you see, he's perhaps going back to the origin of idolatry, and not the poor slaves to it now. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man. That's what they did. And then they went further, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. They put on the pedestal and put in their temple the very things that God had put under the feet of Adam. All things under his feet. Sheep and oxen, birds and beasts. And they go and put those things up. And the, some of the wisest people of the ancient days, like Egypt and Athens, one of the writers of ancient Greece said it was easier to find a god than a man in one of the streets of Athens. And then they weren't satisfied because although they crowded the place with gods and when they heard Paul preaching Jesus and Anastasia they said he's preaching two more deities male and female Jesus and the resurrection and he said well when I came along I saw an altar to the unknown God you're not sure now are you? Him whom you ignorantly worship I preach unto you. So we've got this revelation here they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God, into an image made like a corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and to creeping things. 
And in verse 25, who changed, again as he changed, the truth of God into a lie. And this may read, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's what they did. They, by idolatry, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It's one of the titles of idols. And Satan is said to be a liar and the father of it, the supreme idolater who's yet to come in the temple of God, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So no worship can be offered to the creature. The moment you do that, you, you usurp the very place of Christ. For you're putting up an image. Now, as I said earlier, it may be difficult for you and for me to imagine God. And so we need an image. We need an image. But we don't need a graven image. For God has already provided it in the person of Christ. So we can visualize something of what God is like within our limits, without being idolatrous. Now, if you'll turn back to the book of Daniel, we'll have another comment on the place that this question of the image may have in the scheme of things. You remember in chapter 2, Daniel was brought in before Nebuchadnezzar, and he explained not only the dream that the man had, but he told him what the dream was. I think Nebuchadnezzar had his wits about him. Because he said to the wise men and the astrologers and all that lot, he says, you tell me the dream and then I'll believe what you say about it. Because, you know, if I were threatened with death like those men were and went into the presence of the high and mighty and he told me what the dream was, I'd have wit enough to give him something to go on with that beat old Moore. What I made tracks, you see. But he said, no, no. You tell me the dream and then the interpretation thereof. Or they said, there's no man living, no no astrologer, no necromancer, no prophet. Ah, the more they said that, the more they poked. They said, well, what about this man who's going to do it? And he said, I'll do it, but I don't know it. But God is the revealer of secrets. And then he went into his presence. And he said in verse 31, Thou, O king, sawest to behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. And then you know how it goes on. Describing this peculiar composite image. Now, nobody in his senses thinks that a succession of kingdoms is an image. They can only say that that in some measure symbolizes it. See, the image is only a symbol. It not, doesn't actually represent the thing. And so, it was interpreted as a succession of kingdoms. Well, now, whatever worked in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar, we may not know. But immediately following the fact that this image had said that he was the head of gold, I think he began to think a little bit more of himself than he should. So in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits. Uh, you know what you're doing, Nebuchadnezzar? You're telling us, so this has got the mark of the beast on it. Six. Six. You see, it's coming. In the book of the Revelation, one more six. And then you've got Nebuchadnezzar's false interpretation of his sovereignty. 
coming right out in the book of the Revelation, the golden image again, and then receiving the mark of the beast or worshipping the image just as here. And they set it up in, one, in the plain of Judah in the province of Babylon. And then a proclamation was made throughout his kingdom and we read in the words that are always attractive to me. It says, verse 4, Then a herald cried aloud to you, It is commanded, O people, nations and languages, that at the time that you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. Uh, it sounds a trifle, but I always think of that um, good old Cornish town where they have the, I didn't have a sack but they got all this list of instruments. Isn't it suggestive that idolatry is very much associated with sack but, psaltery, dulcimer and all kinds of music? It's an appeal to that instinct in man, not to the spirit, but to the soul. And here we've got Nebuchadnezzar apparently knowing for all that is so. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Well, you know the story, that's not our theme. We're just showing you how this word image is used to help us as we go through the scriptures. Uh, so, will you turn, just to make sure, Revelation chapter 13. I'm conscious I'm asking you to look at some things that you know already, but it must be done for completeness sake. Chapter 13. Verse 14, it says that there was a beast and there was a false prophet. And it says in verse 13, he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And at the end of the chapter, his number is the number of man, six hundred, three score and six. And then for completeness sake, look at chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's the first resurrection. I've met some people who are sure they're going to take part in the first resurrection, but look at the conditions. Look at the type of people that have that honour. I've already partly quoted, but I think we'll, re we'll give you the actual chapter and verse for the sake of completeness again. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Our Saviour is being badgered by Pharisees, Herodians and Sadducees to try to trip him in his talk. And the first that had a try were the Herodians and in verse 16 it says, they said unto him, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. I've said this before, I know. But sometimes I've got a letter a little bit like that, and then I know what's coming. Don't you know what's coming? Oh, you see, smoothing you down like this, and then comes the question. Tell us, therefore, 
What thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? You see the, the trap, don't you? If he said, oh no, we Jews should not give tribute to a heathen. Well then they simply go to Pilate and say, this man's telling them not to pay tribute to Caesar. If he said, oh yes we should. They say, he calls himself a prophet of God and says, we should support an idolater. They say, we've got him, haven't we? Not quite so, sure, you see. But it says, Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why tempt ye me, you hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. He said unto them, whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. But the point is, you see, the image indicated dominion. The image was not merely just a picture. The moment you said that Caesar's image, that shows he has authority. Now there are some folks, this is beside the point, but still, there are some folks who rule out uh, uh, the Rome entirely from the image of Nebuchadnezzar. They go through, they go Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then right away to the time of the end, and all the rest swept out. But you see, if I were to ask any, even of those people, if you were walking in the streets of Jerusalem in the days of Christ, and you met a soldier, what nationality would he be? Well, at least to be a Roman soldier, not a Jewish one. Oh, I see. And if you were having money to handle, whose image and superscription would it be? Would it be just Israel, or would it possibly be a Roman coin? By the time you've got an army and you've got a mintage, you've already indicated that you've got a sovereign authority in a land, because those two things, there's many others, but those two things are an index. So, as far as I can see, Rome was in the line, and then, of course, the rejection came after Rome, and we've got a long interval before it's picked up again at the time of the end. But that's going into prophecy, which is not our subject. Well now, we've already touched upon Colossians 1.15 and 3.10, only just in passing. We've already, in other studies, seen how definitely it comes in 1 Corinthians 15, where we have the change from one image to another, but I think that's so important that in case anyone misses it, we must go there. And then I want to turn to Philippians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 15, just to show, in case it's necessary, how intimately Adam and his image comes into the theme of the resurrection. I'll read um, verse 42 onwards of chapter 15. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. You see? So that's looking right to resurrection. 
And then he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Well now I want then to come to Philippians chapter 2 and 3. If we can get back to Romans, the 8th chapter, so well and good, but we may not, because of time. Now, at the end of uh, Philippians chapter 3, we read these words. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven. First of all, I'll remind you that the word conversation here is a translation of the Greek word polycuba, P-O-L-I, entering into the word politics, police, metropolitan, and has to do with a city. And so it would be better rendered, not conversation now, we don't use it quite in that same way, for our citizenship is in heaven. And the word is, is not the verb to be here. It means to exist as a reality. A very much stronger word. Our citizenship remains unaltered right through in heaven. From whence, by its very construction, refers to the citizenship and not heaven that out of that very citizenship which is in heaven, there, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now here comes the change. Who shall change our vile body? I want to go back two or three times to Philippians 2, so keep it open. Philippians 2. Um, Verse 8. Speaking of Christ. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Now that word humbled is this word vile. In the days when the authorised version was written, they could speak of a vile man without feeling that they were saying too much. If there comes into your synagogue a man with vile raiment, you see? That is to say, he wasn't very wealthily dressed. And another one comes in wearing a gold ring, you can see the contrast. So it's not vile in the sense of being wicked, it's vile in the sense of being low, lowly. So I'm going to revise uh, the reading of verse 21 like this. Who shall change our body of humiliation. Now you don't have to go to hospital and you don't have to be sick of any disease. You're only going to be as you are now in this life to be conscious many a time that you've got a body of humiliation. And you'll think to yourself, well, thank God, one day, that's not going to happen to me anymore. See, the body of humiliation, he stooped to that sort of body, not a glorious body. And then it says that it may be fashioned like unto. Now, I'm going back to that word change, first of all. Who shall change? I'll say the word slowly, metaschematizo. You could hear our word scheme in it, S-C-H-E-M-E, metaschematizo. Now, that, that's the central part of the word. Will you look at Philippians 2, verse 8? And being found in fashion, schema, all the time is referring back to him who is the real image and likeness, to you who are going to be in his image and likeness. So he says in Philippians 3.21, you shall be re-schemed or refashioned, he says he was found in fashion. He came down to that fashion, you go up to his fashion. You'll see it again in the next uh, statement. 
It says, who shall change this body of our humiliation that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. The word fashioned like is a different word. This word is the word morphos. And if you spell M-O-R-P-H backwards, you almost get F-O-R-M frontwards. And that's the meaning of the word. Morphe is form. Oh, you say, that's in Philippians 2. Well, yes, you're quite right. Verse 6. Who being in the morphe, who being in the form of God, and you are going to be metamorphosized. That's not an accident that science has used that word. The metamorphosis. It's a thrilling thing to see it take place in actual fact. I don't mean to say resurrection or transfiguration, but a cocoon or a chrysalis hanging there. And some of them don't look very nice. They make you a bit squeezy to see some Squeezy, yes. See these things hanging there. But, oh, when the moment comes and it's torn apart and out comes a gorgeous butterfly or a dragonfly. Metamorphosis. God has put it in nature to show that it's one of the possibilities and the word is here. So he took upon him the form of a servant who was originally in the form of God. And we are going to be metamorphosized, fashioned like unto his. Well, the next one is, I've already explained, tapinosis is the word vile, and etapinosis is the word humbled himself. He said there's no possibility of avoiding it, This last verse in Philippians 3 is all the time looking back to Philippians 2. We must all be changed. It doesn't actually say so, but the more you put all these things together, these things together, you begin to realise that just as it can be written, we died with him, we're buried with him, we're quickened with him, we're raised with him, we're seated with him, we can now add by the very words that are used, we are going to be transfigured with him too. Transfigured. You're going to put off this. You're going to put on that. Oh, what a moment. You see on that transfiguration just for a moment? It was white and blistering. It was above the brightness of the sun. Then it was veiled again. Just that moment. And so we've got all that before us with regard to this question of the image. Created in the image there by redemption placed in the image there, higher than ever. So the last reference now, I think we've just got time, Romans the 8th chapter, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate or mark off beforehand, what for? To be conformed to the image of his Son. And then the further reason that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Predestination here robs nobody of anything. Predestination here is that every redeemed child of God shall one day be conformed to the image of his son. And what was implicit in the creation of Adam in the first chapter is going to be explicit and real and experienced when that day of glory comes. Now I know that you may say, well you said most of that in bits and pieces in one of the earlier recordings. Well it does us good sometimes to make sure that it's understood and I wanted to link it 
with the thought at the beginning that by the sheer fact that we are made in the image of God, we can have fellowship with him. We can walk with him. We can have in some measure converse with him. He can make himself understood in a sense that we cannot believe that any lower order of creation ever understands God in that sense. So once more, let us rejoice. Now, God willing, when we meet together next time, we shall have to say, well, we must move on. And so we shall be going into that complex, most difficult and yet most important chapter in Genesis, that is to say Genesis 3. And may the Lord give us grace that as we see our place in this mighty purpose, in spite of sin and death, disobedience and fall, this one, he descended into our likeness, fashioned like as we are, that ultimately one day we may ascend and be in his likeness, fashioned like unto his body of glory. And the bit I didn't read, according to the power whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. So there's no doubt about his ability.